Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. This week, we'll follow the journey of an immigrant, an alumnus, and an entrepreneur. You know, growing up in Taiwan was great. I thought it was a little bit polluted, and we hardly ever saw the sun. So when we landed in Los Angeles International Airport in 1978, it was literally going into a different world. A computer programmer who helped revolutionize how we use the Internet. But it wasn't a light bulb necessarily in a commercial sense, meaning we didn't think building a directory or a searchable database was going to be a huge business. And he turned that idea. Calling it Jerry and David's website was not something he wanted. He didn't like it. He didn't want it. It was difficult to type and it was hard to remember. Into a household name. Yahoo! This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Yahoo co-founder and venture capitalist Jerry Yang. Here's your host, Howard Wolf. The internet changed everything. Simply everything. From the way we communicate to the way we shop, from the way we create community to the way we learn, the internet has fundamentally changed the way we live. But in the nearly 25 years since the emergence of the web for the masses, much has been forgotten about the early days of the internet and the pioneers of its development, the men and women who changed the world. So we have with us here today one of those pioneers, Jerry Yang, the co-founder of Yahoo. Yahoo was founded in 1994 as one of the first guides to the World Wide Web, serving as the ultimate directory of other websites. Yahoo went on to become one of the most successful companies in Silicon Valley, with a market value well over $100 million in the year 2000. Jerry left Yahoo in 2012. After leaving Yahoo, he became a mentor to technology startups and an investor through his firm, Ahmed Cloud Ventures. He continues to be active in both roles today. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Jerry, you came to America from your native Taiwan when you were nine years old. What was that transition like? You know, growing up in Taiwan was great. Um, I, I thought it was always a little bit polluted, and we hardly ever saw the sun. So when we landed in, in Los Angeles International Airport in 1978, it was literally going into a different world. You, you saw people all... My, my impression was I, I remember seeing people of different races and color, ethnicity. Uh, we drove around, you know, from L.A. to Pasadena, and, and you saw these skyscrapers that are uh, sun in this basking in the sun. So I thought it was just totally a different experience. Um, what was funny, Howard, was I, I suffered a, as a child um, asthma and, and sort of respiratory issues, 
And, you know, a year or two into the California sun, um, I was totally cured. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I was a lot more outdoorsy, and, um, and it was just like living the California dream, literally. And you made your way from Southern California up here to San Jose. Correct. My, my family uh, spent about six months in, in Rosemead and then decided to move north uh, to San Jose where one of my uncles was. And um, eventually a lot of my, my extended family came up to San Jose as well. So I, I called San Jose home, went to public high school in East San Jose and um, uh, didn't want to go very far for college. So, uh, so, so Stanford was the place. So before we get to Stanford, I have to ask you a question though. You come from Taiwan and you chose your name. Yes. Most of us don't get to choose our name, <laughs> but you got to choose your name. How'd you come up with Jerry? Well, I, um, my, my mom actually probably ended up picking it for me. Um, I'm glad he, she picked Jerry because uh, probably some of the other choices were not so great. But uh, uh, it, it wanted to reflect. And the, the first thing was to try to reflect what my Chinese name is, which is Zhi Yuan. And so Zhi Yuan would be very difficult for most Americans to say. So Jerry was a little bit, sounds a little bit like the Chinese name. But also um, I think it was a name where um, I, I felt like it it, um, it, it was me. I, I, it's hard to kind of explain what it is, but when you're looking at a list of names and you go, which one you want to be, uh, Jerry kind of rung out to me. And um, uh, I know it's a nickname for a lot of people, for, but for me, it's just Jerry, and uh, it, it obviously has, has, has worked. And I think it's worked very it's well stuck. for you. <laughs> it's not changing now. <laughs> All right, so you're in San Jose. San Jose is so close in proximity to Stanford. Was it the proximity to Stanford that made you choose Stanford? Or was there something else about Stanford that made you say, that's where I really want to go to college? My um, mother is a single mother uh, raising two boys, my brother and I, and um, I'm the oldest. So I think the expectation is always, you know, get to college, go get a job and start providing for the family. And um, and so I, I, I think my mom never really wanted us to leave too far to go to school. We weren't you know, very well off and, and, and going off to the East Coast or something like that was something we never considered. So I applied only to schools in California and um, uh, I was accepted to Caltech and um, Berkeley and Stanford. And um, Caltech was a tough choice because the the men to women ratio was seven to one and, uh, <laughs> and that was not good for an 18, 17 year old boy. But um, I had a full ride to Berkeley uh, in this in the engineering school as a regent scholar there, um, and I was accepted to Stanford. But I, I had some scholarships, but I definitely needed to have some financial aid, loans, and work study, and things like that. Um, and my mom basically felt like, "Hey, you got a free ride to Berkeley. Off, off you go." Um, but I, I really enjoyed um, Stanford for the following reason, uh, which is that I didn't have to declare my major until junior year at Stanford. So I felt this time that I could be exploring different topics and be able to, to, to decide what I wanted to do rather than go in as an, an engineering major at Berkeley. That ended up being the different, even though I had to borrow money, even though I had to work. Of course, how I ended up being an engineering major anyway at Stanford, but I feel feel like it was the journey and not the destination that really compelled me to, to go to Stanford. And, and of course, um, that was probably the most important decision in my life. So you're at Stanford and you're an undergraduate and you meet David Philo, who will become 
one of your dear, dear friends and the partner with whom you start, Yahoo. Tell us about how did you meet David? What attracted you to him? What attracted him to you? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I first met David uh, in John Hennessy's uh, computer architecture class. John Hennessy, the former president the former, of Stanford. The former president of Stanford. He was a, a, a very renowned um, professor in computer science. And he taught this uh, undergraduate a computer architecture class, which he and David Patterson from Berkeley authored the sort of seminal textbook. And um, David Fowler was a TA at the class. Um, it was the first B I ever received. And uh, I remember going to David in sort of TA hours and arguing about something, my homework or grades or quiz or something. And I just remember him looking at me. He says, just get over it. You'll get over it. <laughs> and um, and that is a, f- a refrain uh, that David has since used um, probably 10,000 times with me uh, uh, over our decades of friendship. But um, but you know, meeting David was through a TA uh, position was was not our our finest moment. I, I don't think I liked him then. But um, <laughs> but after I I graduated, we both ended up in the same PhD research group. Um, Once again at Stanford and Stanford, we both were at Stanford uh, in the electrical engineering department under Professor D. McKelly, and that was when we started to get to know each other. The most important, I think, period for us was our trip to Japan. Uh, uh, Stanford had a, a, a campus in Kyoto where Professor D. McKelly, our advisor, was taking a sabbatical and he needed a couple of graduate students to go and um, um, essentially teach but really um, help them babysit, whatever, you know, whatever, write and do other things. This is tough duty. It was, this was tough, and, and, and David and I were, were the ones that got picked to go. And, um, and, you know, the Stanford program, we essentially enrolled like every other undergraduate, which is we had to take Japanese. And, and, um, but when we were there, we taught a undergraduate computer science class. Um, but the rest of the time, we were just like everybody else. And so we were three months uh, a student um, in Kyoto and then three months doing an internship in Tokyo. And during that six months, I think uh, we, David and I, really became close. We uh, were just, um, you know, being in a different environment forces you to create a bond that has lasted a, a, a lifetime. And we also met very... Um, a number of very good friends uh, from that program that um, Srinija Srinivasan, for example, was in that program and she became an early part of Yahoo and now a, 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 a important contributor to the Stanford community. But a number of other people we still keep in touch. So that overseas experience from Stanford, um, again, was seminal in, in, in so many things that we've done since. So then you and David go on to create what you called Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web, a, a, quite a creative title for this thing, <laughs> uh, which was essentially a directory of other websites. So did that start out as just sort of a fun hobby? It, it sure did, uh, Howard. You know, we were uh, came back from Japan, um, and we were trying to finish our PhDs. David and I were uh, probably in that phase of ABT, you know, all but your thesis, and um, and so we were pretty much doing everything we can, but writing our thesis at the time. Uh, <laughs> we were playing softball, we were playing basketball. You know, we would um, uh, play um, fantasy basketball, and back then, fantasy basketball was 
done by the newspaper. You pick your teams, and the next morning you open the newspaper and you look at all the stats, and then you figure out how you're doing against the others. And remember, we we had we had our team, and then we were playing against PhD students in the political science department, the business school, or whatever. And um, and David started to say, "Hey, you know what? There's this information on the internet." And back then, the internet was not the web. It was all these different protocols and um, and uh, and so David wrote kind of this, you know, crawler that went out and grabbed all the data from the previous nice game and, and you know, mushed it together and computed, you know, where we were in the standings against some of the others, and then um, started to decide, hey, we can make trades or we could do this and that, and um, and I think I think that 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 year we ended up winning that fantasy basketball league by the narrowest of margins. Of course, you know, the, the PhD students in political science were just as smart as we were, so. Um, but but it really gave us the the insight that there was so much information on the internet if you knew just how to go find it. And so when um, University of Illinois, you know, with Mark Gendreson and a number of others, took Tim Berners Lee's protocol, the HTTP protocol and the web protocol, and built a, a web server and a web browser, it was a bit of a eureka moment for us because with a single interface and click a point. You're able to publish once on the server, and anybody else who had this browser can view that content in a very consistent um, and beautiful way. And that was when David and I said, "Wow, this thing could be huge someday." And it was still very much in the academic and research community. There was I mean, very was little. there a light bulb that just literally went on? I, you know, it was a light bulb more around um, how unifying this could be, um, but it wasn't a light bulb necessarily in a commercial sense, meaning we didn't think building a directory or a searchable database was going to be a huge business. We just thought it'd be a really useful tool. In fact, um, much of the time that we were playing and building this hobby, uh, you know, as you said, Jerry's and David's Guide to the World Wide Web, um, we were thinking about, wow, there must be some other web-based business plans that we could be writing. And, and I think we were looking at other things to be building around as a business. In the meantime, the hobby that we were maintaining was you know, consuming more and more of our time. We started sleeping under our desks at, at work and things like that. So it was, it was a very interesting time because the hobby and the passion that we had for our little directory um, was, the best, was the best business idea under our nose. So there's a story that um, you were hosting this on Stanford servers. And that it was this was crashing Stanford servers because there was so much traffic, and that Stanford ultimately came to you and said, "Hey, boys, you need to go somewhere else." Is that true? You know, it was uh, you know, again. It, it, so much of it was Stanford's tolerance towards people trying new things and ideas, and and you know, part of what we were very fortunate is to have a, you know, I think I think John Hennessy at that time was you know either the the head of the the department or the, or, the, or the school of engineering, I can't quite remember. But, um, but you know, he, he talked to us about what we were doing. He says, you know, it's fine. Try, you know, do it. But, but if, if it gets too big or, or, or too many people get affected by it, then you guys have to find a way um, to go somewhere else. And, and we had a, a terrific, terrific um, uh, IT person that, ran, that helped run our labs, um, Charlie Orgish. And Charlie was just so helpful and making sure that we got our network and resources. But you're right, over time, um, there was so much bandwidth being kind of taken up in this little corner <laughs> of uh, CSL out of this trailer that 
um, it was time to move off campus. Um, and, um, and that was the beginning of... Of really commercializing this. Well, we, we certainly had to find a way to fund it because we couldn't yeah. um, do it on our own. And, and without Stanford's incubation resources, it was very difficult. So once the word got out, it, it did become sort of a, a commercial exercise. This is Stanford Pathfinders. More with Yahoo founder Jerry Yang coming up. This is Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight 121. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Yahoo founder Jerry Yang. The Yahoos, on the other hand, seem to have no virtues whatsoever. So one hears many stories of how you and David came up with the name Yahoo. So some say it stands for this acronym, right? Yet another hierarchical, officious oracle. Right. Others say it comes from the use of the word Yahoo in the book Gulliver's Travels. And yet others say it has something oddly to do with a swim coach. So which is it? How did you come up with this crazy name Yahoo for your company? I had not heard of the swim coach one, but I may have to go back and figure it out. It's something about a swim coach yelling at his swimmers in the water saying, you Yahoo. Well, you know, um, there are various points in which Yahoo became the perfect name. One was, um, the first was David's insistence that his name was not associated with the website because calling it Jerry and David's website uh, was not something he wanted. He he didn't like it. He didn't want it. It was difficult to type and it was hard to remember. So we needed something to sort of be short and sweet. And um, and we did want to do an acronym, and we wanted an Which acronym. It's a big thing at Stanford. It was it's a big thing in computer science, a big thing at Stanford. Yes. You know, it's um, uh, and we wanted to do something that started with yet another, uh, because there were so many other similar directories and competitors, and and so we wanted to be at yet another. That's a little tongue in cheek, right? Well, yet another web web directory, or yet another. <laughs> um, uh, something, and so we looked up in the dictionary all the words that started YA. And uh, Yahoo really stood out because the definition is a a group of very uncivilized and rude people uh, coming from Gulliver's Travels, and um, and David thought that it fit him because he grew up in Louisiana, in the South, and 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 you know he claims that you know people called him a Yahoo. So um, so we were like this really fit us because we were a couple graduate students and we weren't doing what we're supposed to be doing and. Um, and calling ourselves Yahoos was sort of this irreverent, um, tongue-in-cheek thing, and um, and yeah, we we went back and fit a acronym behind it to be the yet another officious oracle, hierarchical officious oracle, and um, and 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 that name kind of stuck. You know, people loved it, and it was a sense of discovery. Um, and we, we put that exclamation point behind it um, once we became a company, and and so it was sort of the the. Um, the Eureka moment, the Yahoo moment, became more of the the the, the thing that people remember Yahoo for as a brand rather than the early histories. But um, but I think to the end, I think David was you know the cheap Yahoo on his business card, and um, so we had a lot of fun with that name. So let's switch gears. Um, since leaving Yahoo, you've remained immersed in the technology world, mainly in the digital internet space as an investor, an advisor, a board member. Has the rise of the internet and its influence on society 
all that's happened since you formed Yahoo. Has it surprised you? It has really surpassed a lot of expectations in some ways and took a lot longer in other ways. And, oh. and you know, I, I remember we all talked about mobility as the big next wave as early as the late 90s. Um, I think Yahoo made its first acquisition for a mobile company in 1999. And of course, until really the iPhone in the mid-2000s, um, it, it really didn't come about and, 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 and commercially in terms of the richness and the capabilities of mobile, it really happened in, in this current decade after 2010. So in some ways, we, we thought mobile was going to happen a lot earlier. Um, same thing for video. Video was always talked about as the next big thing. And, um, uh, and obviously YouTube, but even with YouTube, it took, I think, another four or five years before um, video became this very understood um, and internet-centric media, media form. So in some ways, I think the, the timing was plus or minus a few years. I think you know, 20 years from now, nobody will care how long it took because it'll, it'll be, be so important and impactful. Um, but, but I think the, the fact that the internet is now so pervasive, uh, it is a medium that is essentially part of the mainstream, which was not something that, that um, we experienced when we first started Yahoo. I remember going around and talking to people and say, you know, how many of you heard of Yahoo? In the beginning, you know, 20% of the room would raise their hand and and eventually, everybody rose, raised their hand. But I think it took a little while for, 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 for internet to be truly mainstream. And I think part of the exciting thing now versus 20 years ago is all the innovation that's happening in Silicon Valley is using digital, using the internet, using the cloud and mobility and the big data to impact mainstream businesses or mainstream lifestyles. And, and that's really what I think all of us who started business uh, is dreamed about, which is to do things that are in the mainstream rather than to doing things sort of on yeah. the fringe. So that's a perfect segue to your investment activities today. Okay. So you have a venture capital firm, you're an investor, you're an advisor. What excites you in technology today? Where are you and your partners making bets today? We, we uh, it was, it, I have three younger guys that work with me and they're, they're, um, they understand a lot of the uh, both the current technology, but also a lot of the the younger mentality as it, when it comes to innovation and technology. And for me, the key thing has always been how data is being used to transform the future. And um, and so we focus on data driven businesses, and and that's a very simple premise. But now has it spread to everything, everything from artificial intelligence to robotics to biosciences. Um, big data is the buzz. But big data is, I think, the key. So one more question that's related to this, speaking about big data. Is privacy online a fiction? Have we all cut sort of a Faustian deal that we get all this great access and connectivity, but in return we give up all claims to privacy? Is that where we are now? I think it's an evolving, you know, this is, uh, privacy has been something that's been evolving since the beginning of um, media and communications, telephones, phone numbers, um, recordings. And I think the internet has just increased the frequency, the, the, the amount of data that goes back and forth. And 
I think it's still being defined. That's a short answer to your question, but a longer answer would be: um, I think people's tolerance for privacy differs from culture to culture, even pe- person to person. Generationally, generationally, I think my kids have a very different view of their privacy online versus me versus my previous generation. So, um, so I think there is this going to be this ongoing debate about what is privacy, what is acceptable to. At the, is it at the individual level? Is it at the country level? Is it at a cultural level? Um, and um, and in some ways, it's a trade. And I think people are saying, hey, if somebody who is willing to offer up their privacy to have more services, that's a trade that that person should be able to make. How far how far can it be personalized? I think um, is going to be tested. And but um, uh, but it is involving thing because. Technology enables you to come up with even more ways. You think about artificial intelligence. You think about um, being able to have uh, facial recognition as a, an ID. You think about, you know, your phone someday is going to not only know what your face looks like, but your finger ID, um, and that probably is known to the hardware or some cloud provider. So, are you willing to have that amount of data in the cloud that somebody else knows in exchange for the convenience? That's a big question. So one final question for you. You and your wife, Akiko, who you met at, when you were both students at Stanford, are both wonderfully generous philanthropists. And Stanford's been the beneficiary of this, but so many other groups as well. Why is this philanthropy such a big part of your lives? Why is it so important to you? It's uh, something that we probably learn as children to be able to give back to your community. And... Um, and it wasn't something that was because we had money. Neither of our family were rich. But I think it was this, maybe it was a bit of an Asian, you know, Akiko's Japanese and I'm Chinese, but a bit of the Asian ethos, especially around schools, the schools you go to. Um, and so when, when we were fortunate enough to be presented with the opportunity under Gerhard Casper to help uh, with the, the campaign for undergraduate education, um, we were still very young. In, in retrospect, we were very young. Um, but to be able to to take um, um, being in the position we were and take a take a leap of faith and say, hey, why don't we start giving back early? Maybe we can't give back forever, but but by being involved in um, giving back, we've learned so much, and I think that's the joy. And, uh, and maybe people feel like people get involved in philanthropy for sort of very altruistic reasons, Howard. And for us, I think we are very selfish. We do it because it gives us tremendous amount of reward. We do it because we meet amazing people. We do it because um, you can see the fruits of your investment uh, in ways that you can't do through any other means. So whether it's Stanford or the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco that Akiko is the chair for or wildlife conservation, whatever cause that we pick, we see it as investments. Not only do we see returns in the work that we do, but also we get the return in being happy ourselves and learning every day. And, and to us, that's the formula that we, we, we wanted to do when we got married, and we're still on that journey. And it's been incredible, but hopefully it continues. Jerry, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime, on demand, with the Sirius XM app. The yodel. Can you yodel Yahoo for us? All right, let's give it a try. Yahoo! You heard it first, right here. Sirius XM. (laughs) Oh my God, Jerry. That's that's fantastic. (laughs)